This morning I want to um, walk through the, these brief eight verses that we have, this conversation between Jesus and a Canaanite woman who is desperate for help. Admittedly, this is a story that's uncomfortable at points, so we might even say it's as uncomfortable as it is encouraging because it gets there. Uh, and you might say it just kind of provokes in us a little bit of whiplash. It's what I feel every time I reflect on this story. There's much beneath it. This is a story that's both in our gospel today in Matthew 15, but it's also in Mark chapter 7 if you want to go and, and read some of uh, you know, the connecting stuff that's in Mark 7 as well. But before we dive in deeper, I want us to talk about the theological background, a little more of what's going on. Who is this Jesus What do we know about the Jesus who enters into this exchange? As a Jewish man and as the Jews' long-awaited Messiah, he understands, it's clear in this story that he understands the particular story into which he has come and the people to whom he belongs. And yet we see him explode with delight. Unlike any Jew before him, really, He delights at this Canaanite woman's great faith. There's a movement, there's a power in this conversation, but we're left wondering, did he change his mind? Did she change his mind? So what's going on here? So let's start with a visual when we talk about this, the background here. As some of you know, we light these two candles on the Holy Communion table to remind us that Jesus is both God and man. We also talk about the presence of, of heaven and earth and uh, the present and the future, like this bringing together of that, but primarily to remind us that Jesus is both God and man. His dual nature was a very significant topic in the first few hundred years of the church. Very significant at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Uh, Because not surprisingly, you might imagine, a lot of the controversies in the earliest centuries, they had to do with just how human or just how divine people thought Jesus could actually be or really was. Some imagined him to be a spiritual being who only appeared human, which is how he seemed to, to, to be able to die and be resurrected. He only seemed to do that because he was spiritual. Or others felt that he was just a human, completely human, but he had a sort of a divine spark, as you might say, or, or just he was uniquely connected to the Holy Spirit, had the Holy Spirit without measure, as the Scriptures say. So that's what it was. He was a medium of the divine, some might say. And so choosing one or the other of these, very you know, all human, all spiritual, you know, choosing one or the other is often how these various and often opposing groups resolve the tension. They resolve the tension. Is he God or is he man? But instead of choosing one ditch or the other, this council of Chalcedon, they they stayed in the road and they affirmed what John 1 teaches, uh, makes clear about Jesus. He was both pre-existent and historical, divine and human resurrected bodily and eternally present with the Father on our behalf bodily, but also he's with us here until the end of the age, just as he promised his disciples, a promise that extends to us. So since at least Chalcedon, we're going to do some deep cuts today, is that all right? Since Chalcedon, theologians have called this the hypostatic union. That's a term you'll probably never use. But the meaning, for them, they were wanting to make this very clear. Greek hypo or hupo, it means under or inside. And static, we know, means to set 
to fix, to make it firm. So in other words, what they were saying is this union of humanity and divinity is established, it's fixed, it's set within the person of Jesus. Within what you see and what we talk about historically is also the God who came for us and is with us, Emmanuel. A seeming contradiction is resolved with tension, holding those two together. So these candles are lit to remind us of this tension. Attention in the sense that we hold them together. They belong together even if they don't easily resolve for us. Does that make sense? We hold them together. As you probably know, though, in physics, the tension between two connected points, what does it produce? You create that, that strength, right? With a rope, a cable, or even a rubber band, when you stretch it apart, pull it tight, you anchor it at either end, it's the tension that makes that connection firmer and thus more stable. This is how, you know, the pedestrian bridge in Falls Park makes it possible for us to take a stroll out there and take all of our selfies and and what have you. Um, It's not about either end of those massive cables so much as it is about their connection, what connects them, the relationship between them, the force created in that tension that allows this walkway, massive walkway, to be stretched, seemingly floating in air. And so this leads to a problem for us, right, when we talk about this tension, the, the, the God-man, Jesus. The problem for many of us in the late modern era is that belief in this Jesus, acceptance of this kind of tension, it requires an embrace of mystery and transcendence. It calls us beyond what we can understand. And to embrace this, it actually changes our relationship to some of the prevailing ways of thinking today. What we'll call, let's say, the isms of our day. Rationalism, scientism, and even what's been called presentism. That like today, right now, we have arrived at the moment and this is it. And this is what matters the most. And these tend to shrink reality right into the concrete or we, we might say to chemistry, to culture. And in the isms narrative, what happens? Reality is only what can be explained, but ironically, by very subjective, very sensitive, very self-interested, time-bound beings like you and me. You know, like all the empirical stuff, what all the objective people like all of us, as objective as, as we are, we, what we've figured out, right? I'm being facetious. So here's the question, what does all that have to do, what does this tension have to do with Jesus and the Canaanite woman? I think it has everything to do with it. I think we see this playing out, the the nature of, of Jesus as both a situated particular Jew, but also the one through whom the kingdom is coming. In this at first uncomfortable exchange, we see Jesus' real Jewishness and his place as their promised Messiah in their unique unfolding story. We do see his particularity. We see his humanity. We see the history. But we also see his divinity, his awareness of, his connection to the inevitable, even though he's situated in time, his connection to the universal, even though he's situated in the particular, this universal blessing of the borderless salvation that is to come, that he was bringing for everyone who would believe in him. So as the story unfolds, we get to see how this woman's faith 
it becomes a watershed. It becomes a breaking through of just the massive redemptive story, yet in the tiny world of just of two women, one of whom is suffering mightily. We're meant to see Jesus, both God and man, a Nazarene Jew, and the co-eternal Son of God, through the eyes of an unexpected outsider. All right, so verse 21, let's walk through it. It reads, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. There, that it's referring to, was the uh, region of Galilee and Israel. So what we know what's happening there is his ministry to his own people is flourishing, but it's also become overwhelming. We see that time and again. We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago with the the feeding of the 5,000. So what happens? He and his disciples, they head 50 miles northwest, several days travel. They are getting out of Dodge, as it were. So they've traveled several days, and they are deep in the heart of pagan land, right on the Mediterranean. The fact that uh, Jesus is taking this hiatus here in Gentile country is surprising. It's really surprising. It's challenging. It's, it, it doesn't make a, a lot of sense, at least for his disciples anyway. Why are we this far from home? But apparently Jesus was becoming, we find out, he's becoming well-known outside of Jewish circles. Verse 22 proves the point. It says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So word has gotten 50 miles north of Galilee. She knows who he is. She knows what he's about. She knows where he's from. And what she doesn't hesitate in this moment to acknowledge him as the son of David. That is a messianic title. But for her, it's interesting, this is not prohibitive. She doesn't see a barrier. And she hurdles any barrier that might have been there between Jews and Gentiles for the sake of her suffering daughter. Verse 23 says, But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she was crying out after us. And those two details are, are interesting. Was Jesus ignoring her here? I don't think he was. I don't think... You know, it doesn't seem that he was. In fact, his disciples interpret whatever this silence means as ineffective. It's not working to run her off, to build the barrier. It's not what they want him to be doing. They want him to speak and send her away. But he doesn't. And what's going on here, you know, is kind of like the initial, it's kind of like the frustration we see them um, expressing when he fed the 5,000. They can't be bothered even to address Jesus with a title of honor like the woman does. And that's important because you see that most often in, in throughout Matthew's gospel. They just say, send her away. So they're barking in order again to Jesus. Now, as I've often pointed out, you know, um, the disciples don't come off very well at many points in the Gospels. Have you noticed that? And here's the interesting thing about that. These are the Gospels they authored and passed on. I wonder how many of us would be willing <laughs> to let everybody see the way in which we missed it. Our ignorance. But they're happy for us to learn from their ignorance and learn from their mistakes so that Jesus might be made known. Here they seem to care only about their own peace. And they're in pagan land, after all. It's not comfortable. And I think we're meant to interpret this, um, 
this meaningful pause on Jesus' part as a, as a silent engagement. I think it's actually a very pregnant, important moment. Given where the story goes, I think Jesus has begun searching for the meaning of this moment, pausing prayerfully to find his way forward in the will of the Father. He's connecting. One scholar called this like a Gentile Gethsemane. Right here, the, the Jewish Jesus is confronted with the will of the Father and it's coming to bear in him. A social truth is colliding with a spiritual truth. And Jesus must navigate this. He begins with silence. He must uh, 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 approach this as Israel's Messiah, but how? What about this Gentile woman crying out to him, full of desperation and full of genuine faith? What is the response? And then Jesus begins to, to give voice to the tension. Right? He says in verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And on the face of it, it sounds like, you know, that he has a fixed idea of the limits of his calling. Only Israel. But if we allow for the fact that he's talking to her at all, and that he will ultimately respond to her faith, he seems actually to be saying that though he was sent only to Israel, he was not sent only for Israel. The tension in him, and we find out, is, is more about the ordained timing and direction of his ministry than the ultimate scope of it. We see this elsewhere in the Gospels, right? Where Jesus, where Gentiles come to him, or his, his apostles come to him and say, there's some people who want to meet you, and Jesus is troubled by this. Is it time? Is it time? Verse 25, he says, I, you know, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 25, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. So by kneeling and calling him Lord, she takes a posture of honor, of worship even. She has a sense that even in this initial objection, he is moving toward her. Three things are working in her favor, remember. He's here in her country. What on earth is the son of David doing here? Secondly, he hasn't listened to his disciples, thankfully, and sent her away. And he hasn't said no. He's engaged her. He's brought forward the facts, but he's also connecting with her. And then he answers he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's verse 26. And that sounds rough, doesn't it? It sounds hard. And you can actually find some scholars out there who believe this story is about Jesus calling the woman uh, a racist slur until this woman enlightens the bigotry out of Jesus. The idea being that Jesus, more human than God... He needed to change his heart too, which of course allows for all sorts of scrutiny to be put on the things that he says elsewhere. So there you go. There's the ditch that we have a tendency to fall in. And I think you can pull on that thread and you can unravel as much of the biblical sweater as you like if Jesus had to learn not to be a bigot, etc., etc. But there are obvious problems with the argument and they're actually right here in the text. Here Jesus uses the word kynarion for dog. The common word for a dog, street dog, is kion. Everywhere else in the scriptures, in the New Testament, we see kion. Jesus says kynarion. What's the difference? Why does this matter? Kynarion are pets. And now you might be thinking, that's still not much of an improvement, right? 
they're house dogs. They're not scavenging mongrels. They're inside, not outside, which he makes clear. This is not an insult. It's a word picture, and it doesn't deter her. In fact, it does the opposite. She gets it. She leans in, and she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I love this woman and the way in which she's engaging, leaning in to what Jesus is saying. She's not insulted because Jesus isn't insulting her. She understands where his words are coming from, but also where they're taking him. And what's happening right here? They're taking him toward her. She feels it. She knows it. The children are at the table. Others are waiting and hungry. She gets it. Israel must be offered the bread first and uniquely, or God and his prophets are just liars. This is how it's meant to, to, to flesh out. But, you know, as our reading in Isaiah 56 today um, says, it says, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This reality is alive and well in Jesus. It's a question of timing. It's a question of this, this sense of a watershed and a breaking through that's happening. The Savior came to those under the law, Paul told the Galatians, to redeem them from the law. He's making the same point Jesus is making here, first things first. But, what's going on? Why not just that? Be, you know, the Messiah of the Jews is actually being pulled on by the faith of a Gentile. An outsider. It tells us much. And faith from anyone is what we might call the currency of the kingdom. It's undeniable. By this point in the gospel, Jesus has already sent his disciples out with this message, and it may be yielding more fruit in farther flung places than, uh, than he even imagined at that time. It's coming back, yielding fruit even in foreign vineyards. It's shocking. And then the question of what if Jesus does deliver this woman? Then what? The dam might break. The Gentiles might flood in too quickly, and Jesus' ministry on earth is brief, relatively speaking. And this is what Jesus is navigating. He is honoring the path as an Israelite while he's opening out to the divine will, to the inherent power of the gospel beyond borders. This is what he's doing. He's embodying that tension. In other words, the eventual, he knows, is already arriving. Faith is pushing the timeline and the boundaries and the possibilities, it would seem. And so I think what we're meant to see at this point in the narrative is the power of faith itself. It pushes the timeline and the boundaries and the possibilities because that's the kind of thing faith does. Even a little bit, Jesus has already said. Verse 28, then Jesus answered her, O woman, Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So shockingly, the Messiah of the Jews, he comes walking down her street in pagan land. And by faith, she knew he could save her. She saw more because he was more. Her faith pulled on, not just the Savior of the Jews, the Messiah of Israel, but of the God who has come, not only for them, but for her and for us. It's not an accident that those we see really worshiping Jesus in the Gospels, listen to this, the ones we see calling him Son of David and Lord, they seem to know more about him than anyone else, and they are the ones who are most desperate for him. 
their suffering pulls on the Savior, pulls on the healer, pulling on his divinity, pulling him across ethnic borders, across gender, cultural, and economic divides, even across religious ceremonial barriers. This is the power of faith. Jesus breaks rules that are breaking people when they put their faith in him. Lepers and tax collectors and you name it. Jesus loves to be pulled on. And this brings us right back into the territory of where Jonah put us last week. The need for healing and rescue is universal. The world is broken and it's groaning. Much of it is masked behind idols that seem to fill one hole in our hearts by digging out another one. So the way to the Gentiles, the way to their idols, was through, not around Israel. And this is what Jesus is bringing. And the Canaanite woman, she is a testimony to the honest desperation of the whole world and the necessity of faith in Jesus for truly addressing it. And Jesus will and does respond. Her story, I think for us, shatters any idea that Christianity can be reduced to hope for its adherence only. For just us. No, it's a mission of compassion, of healing and salvation that opens out to a wounded and captive world. Because faith is still the currency of the kingdom. It's still what we are called to bring to the world. To look beyond the isms, to imagine a story beyond the immediate Imagine something better. And because faith is still the currency of the kingdom, Jesus still calls us to see our struggles, our desperate circumstances, not as barriers between us and him, but actually as uniquely powerful intersections where he moves toward us, where he loves to meet us. It's in the real stuff of our lives, the particular, living in our own pagan land, that he reaches out to graft us into his story, into his story that ran through a people, his ethnic people, to graft us into this root, as Paul talked about or told the Romans in our reading today. So let me close with this. Uh, during the week, I always try to take a few moments to do Lectio Divina with the scriptures I'm preaching on and just to listen and say, what, what's coming through, Lord? What, what's the word? What's the phrase? And when I did this again, I guess it was on Thursday, I'll tell you the words that, that stood out most to me. Oh woman, oh woman. Jesus exclaims, oh woman. And I wish I could have heard how he said that to her. Don't you, like, what did it, would it sound like? What's his inflection, what's the volume? Like, what were his facial expressions like when he said this, when he was moved so deeply? And so often I, I can say that my faith and its expression, it just feels encumbered, you know, if, if not by some lingering doubt, then by my tendency to just treat prayer like plan B. But honestly, I just really, really want to imagine Jesus saying to me, oh, Seth. Great is your faith. Oh, Steve, great is your faith. Oh, Vivian, great is your faith. Oh, John, great is your faith. Oh, Amy, great is your faith. I 
I really want to imagine this. I want the kind of faith that would have bowled Jesus over. I want the kind of faith that causes the kingdom to just break in abruptly. I'm always asking for this kind of faith. And I know I'm the guy up here in the robe, but I'm not there yet. And I'm still trying to pay attention to all the things that are keeping me from it. And I want this for you too. We should want it for each other. And I know the voices around us would prefer that we simmer down, that we just keep this faith thing in hushed tones behind our stained glass windows. And you know what? There are probably even some disciples in our circles who would prefer that we pipe down to. Just. But let's not. Let's not. Because Jesus is moving toward us. He's, he's coming to our pagan land, the one we're contributing to every day. He's still coming because it's who he is. He is the God who created and loves the world, and he'll go anywhere, and he is going anywhere for us. Let's cry out together for the son of David as we continue to worship together. Father, thank you for your kindness. We love you. Give us greater faith. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. You are good and the world needs you. You've called us, help us to be those who are willing in great faith to do what you've called us to do, to rely on you in the midst of our own suffering and to rely on you as we stride into the suffering of others. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.